We are in, in Luke 5, and uh, this time of year in Rochester, we have days that are just dark, um, days that are characterized by darkness. A lot of us get up when it's dark outside, and then we get home from work when it's dark outside. So it just seems like it's never-ending darkness, and so we do everything we can to just sort of offset it all with Christmas lights so that there's something that's not depressing around this time of year. And it's not a, a bad way to celebrate the coming of Jesus, because Scripture describes the coming of Jesus as light coming into the world. Uh, in John 1, 9, it says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That's how it described the, the coming of Christ. So, so the world is dark, but Jesus is the light that comes in the darkness. He comes and he gets close to bring light. And of course, that darkness isn't the darkness of short winter days, but it's the darkness of sin, of sorrow, of loss, of death that all make the world a dark place. And when, when we see the, the darkness of the world around us, we could deny it, and we could say that, no, it's really not that bad. But if you get close to people who are suffering, there really is no denying the, the pain and the, the brokenness in the world around us. Another way that we could approach the darkness is to run away from it and try to create a bubble of life that, that isn't all that dark for us. But the darkness always just finds a way in. Sometimes we can even be totally overcome by the darkness where we become part of the problem. And we, we sin ourselves. We contribute to the darkness because we've gotten so overwhelmed by it that we just spread the sorrow ourselves. But the way of Jesus is to bring light into the darkness. It's not to deny that the darkness exists. It's not to run in fear. And it's also not to be overcome by the darkness and become part of the darkness. But the way of Jesus is to get close to the dark realities of life in order to bring light and peace. So in today's passage, we're going to see two people whose lives were marked by incredible suffering, even more than most people, and we see Jesus come to bring light into them, which is a reminder of what he does for us and a reminder of what we're called to do in the world around us. So, so Luke chapter 5, verse 12, when he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And leprosy is a term that in Bible days actually meant a little bit more than it means today. Uh, in our day, leprosy means like one condition, Hansen's disease, um, the, that in our day can be cured, but in their day it couldn't. Uh, but in their day, they called everything that looked like that leprosy. And some of what looked like that could be cured, but then uh, uh, Hansen's disease could not. And so they had to kind of treat everybody who had anything that looked like leprosy like they had the incurable kind um, just to be safe. Uh, and they, they had to stay away from people. They had, uh, like, quarantine protocols to make sure that people were kept away so that they, they didn't spread that disease to people. Because if they had that incurable kind, it would be absolutely terrible. I mean, as that disease progressed, it was horrible. People would get le big lesions on their skin. Uh, they would get nodules, and their nerves would start to become damaged. They would start to lose sensation and the ability to feel in their extremities. Um, so people would lose the, the feeling in their hands and in their feet, and this would leave them prone to all kinds of infection and insects getting in. Um, so, so if you had that kind of leprosy, it was an awful thing. Um, and, and this was also a disease that the second you were diagnosed with it, severed all of your relationships. In Leviticus 13, it had all the rules that were in place for lepers, and we can read them and think, man, this seems like it was really cruel, but they were really just trying to make sure these diseases didn't spread. Um, a, a leper had to stay away from absolutely everybody. They couldn't live where everybody else lived. Uh, if they walked somewhere, they had to announce unclean so that people would know that they're coming so that they wouldn't get infected. 
Uh, Lepers weren't allowed to worship in the temple with everyone anymore because of the threat of contagion and because they were considered to be ceremonially unclean. They were thought that they weren't, it wasn't fit for them to enter into the presence of God. Uh, They weren't allowed to have contact with anyone because if someone touched you, they had to be treated like they were ceremonially unclean as well. So we almost can't imagine how bad it was to be a leper. When people are struggling and suffering with like medical problems, uh, they, they always draw comfort from community and from family and from other people. And, and as you spend time with people who are suffering, you'll see that those are the times where they're drawing near to their family and drawing comfort from them. They're drawing near to their church and drawing comfort from it. So I can't imagine what it would be to, to have a diagnosis like leprosy, but then also with it, the command that you now have to stay away from your spouse, from your kids, from your brothers and sisters, from your church. You just can't go near anyone. The only people that you can have community with are a bunch of strangers that have similar conditions that travel together in a leper colony. So... Leprosy that was progressing meant a death sentence. It meant isolation, and it also meant that your whole identity would change because you couldn't do the things you were doing before. You went from being a husband to being a leper, from being a farmer to being a leper. Your whole life became about leprosy. Plus, there was a stigma. Uh, In their culture, a lot of people believed that if you had a disease, that it must be because you committed some kind of sin. And you see Jesus go head-to-head with with false beliefs like that. You see it in John chapter 9, for example, where a guy is born blind, and his disciples are immediately asking Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It must be that someone sinned to deserve a life like this. And so someone with leprosy would have been ceremonially unclean, they would have been contagious, and people would have wondered, what did he do to deserve this? So here's this leper, and this particular leper's disease has progressed. It says in verse 12 that he's full of leprosy, or he's covered with leprosy. So he's probably had this disease for a while. It's possible that he barely knows the people that were once his closest family members. Leprosy has taken over his world, so his world has become very dark. But he's heard about Jesus. And he knows something of who Jesus is. He's probably heard about the miracles. He's heard that Jesus has come speaking. And when he speaks, his words are unlike anyone else's. He speaks with authority and power. So he runs to Jesus. He's so desperate that he violates all of the social norms. And he approaches Jesus, who would have at least been thought to be like a holy rabbi at this point. And a defiled, unholy man never would have approached someone like a rabbi. You know, I'm sure when he approached Jesus, there were all kinds of gasps because he has really bad leprosy, he's contagious, he's unclean, and he's approaching this, this holy teacher. And I'm sure that you, you can kind of picture the scene that as he starts to approach Jesus, all the crowd is pressed in on Jesus like they were at this time. Thousands of people gathered around him to hear his teaching, and this leper, leper comes and he cuts through that crowd like a knife. People are scattering. And then he gets up to Jesus, and you would expect Jesus to run too because he's a holy man. He's not going to be exposed to a leper like this, but Jesus stays put. So now you have Jesus and the leper in probably a 50-foot radius before you can get to, to the next person. And notice what this guy says. Notice also what, what he doesn't say. First he says, if you will, you can make me clean. So the first thing he says is not, if you will, you can heal me. He says, but you can make me clean. It seems like the thing that was bugging him the most was the stigma. It was the isolation. It was not being able to go to temple, not being able to be around other people. He, he not only wants the physical healing, but he wants to be able to get around people again. 
wants to worship again. He wants to be accepted in society. He doesn't want to be an outcast anymore. This uncleanness seems like it's worse than the disease. Also, he says to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. Notice he doesn't say to Jesus that maybe you have the power to heal me. He knows he's got the power. The only question in his mind is, is he willing to use it to heal me? He knows that Jesus can heal. There's no question about that at all. He says, Jesus, all that is necessary is your willingness, and if you are willing, then I know that you can heal. And he comes and he bows before Jesus. He's got his face bowed to the ground. It's like he's praying, probably without knowing it's a prayer. He comes desperate. He comes lonely. He comes isolated. He's sick. He's frail. He knows that Jesus is only hope. He comes despite the social rules about approaching a holy man. He comes bowing. He comes submitting to Jesus' will. And Jesus, even though he is clean, even though he's holy, even though he's a rabbi, and and even though he knows that this man could like legally at least contaminate him, he doesn't recoil. He doesn't run from the darkness. He doesn't send this man away. And not only does he not reject him, he does something that would have caused everybody in that crowd to just gasp out loud. The beginning of verse 13, it says, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. So this pure and holy rabbi just reached out his hand and touched a clearly unclean man who's covered in leprosy. This would have shocked the religious people. It would have shocked the good people. It would have shocked Jesus' disciples. And it would have shocked this leper because for the first time in years, he's been touched by another human being. He has to remember in his distant memory when he used to be able to cuddle with his kids and embrace his wife and hug his family. But ever since that spot showed up on his skin, he's been living this life of solitary confinement. And Jesus touches him. This is the first person who's not afraid of him, the first person who cares more for him than he does for himself. And and according to the law, Jesus would have been defiled here. He touched an unclean person. He would have been considered to be unclean himself because of what he did. So these crowds around him must have just totally screeched into silence at this point. This was totally unexpected because what rabbi would touch a leper and take that curse on himself? I mean, here Jesus was risking his own cleanness. He was risking his own health to touch this man. Jesus was being defiled in their eyes. But this isn't just an ordinary rabbi. This is Jesus. This is what Jesus does. This shocking moment is a moment where he shows what his mission in life would be like, that he would come and not only risk uncleanness to cleanse us, he would come and take real uncleanness on himself so that we could be made whole. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus would come and he would not only risk isolation, but he would die alone on the cross, isolated from his father, so that we could be brought in and no longer be outcasts. Jesus, who was totally pure, totally clean, never had any of his own sin, would come and become sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God. And this is the good news of Christianity. That that on our own, we're unclean, we're defiled, but Jesus went to the cross to take our defilement upon himself and so that we could be made clean. So Jesus touches him, and in verse 13, he says, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. 
Jesus says, you're right. The question wasn't whether I could heal you. The question was whether I'm willing, and I am willing. So be clean. So Jesus touches this leper, and he contaminates the leper with his cleanness. He's showing that in this kingdom he's bringing, there's this this totally different set of laws. There's going to be a reversal of these laws of contamination. Um, that, That now the clean can contaminate the unclean instead of the unclean contaminating the clean. And remember where this happens in Luke's narrative. This is right after Peter had just told Jesus, uh, I am a sinful man, go away from me. I'm not worthy to be around you. I'm not clean enough. I'm not good enough. And here Jesus comes and touch someone who is, touches someone who's certainly not clean enough, certainly not good enough, and he heals him. And with this leper, Jesus is showing his willingness to cleanse us. Listen to what Jesus says about our cleansing in John chapter 6, verse 37. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So when we run to Jesus with all of our sin, with all of our defilement, when we come to Jesus, we're only coming to him because the Father has put it in our heart to come to him. And Jesus says of all those who come to him, he won't cast anyone away. He's not going to say no to anyone who comes to him on his terms. I mean, I'm sure everybody here expected Jesus to send this leper away. Don't get near me. I'm a holy man. You're an unclean man. But Jesus not only didn't cast him out, Jesus touched him and cleansed him. And so if you think, you know, maybe I'm the type of sinner that Jesus doesn't cleanse, he says that if you repent and you really come to him, there is no such type. The only sinner that Jesus doesn't cleanse is the one who doesn't want cleansing from his sin. You know, if someone's going to cling to his sin and say, I want this, but I want Jesus too, yeah, Jesus isn't saying he's going to to cleanse you of that sin that you want to keep. But if you look at your life and you are disgusted with how you've been living, you recognize your sin, you recognize that, that you rightly deserve judgment for it, and you come and you bring it to Jesus, no matter how bad it is, no matter how hypocritical it is, no matter how long it's been going on, of all those who come to him, Jesus promises he will not lose one. He will cleanse you. And maybe like the leper, your whole identity and your whole reputation has been mixed in with your sin, maybe even just in your head. That when you think of yourself, you think of yourself as the the thief, or you think of yourself as the pervert, you think of yourself as the adulterer, you think of yourself as the, the addict, that these things are like your identity, that your sin has become who you are, and it's almost inseparable from who you are. Jesus will cleanse even you. That doesn't have to be who you are. That doesn't have to be your identity. Jesus reaches out and touches a leper to make him acceptable again, to change him back from a leper into a father, back from a leper into a husband, from a leper into a son of God. Jesus gets involved with the messes. And as as his followers, we follow him. We get involved with messes too. Jesus reached out to the most defiled guy so that he could heal him. And our calling in the world is to bring light in a similar way. 
You know, what we sometimes do, especially like in church and religious circles, is that we, we treat it like it's the bad people out there and it's the good people in here. And out there, it's almost like the, the zombie apocalypse. And, and we'll go out there for a minute if we have to and try to navigate it like with a lot of skill and then retreat back here really quickly because there's a pretty good chance that we're going to get bitten and infected if we stay out there, that we're going to catch their sin. And, and it's true that there are definitely times where we need to put some distance between ourselves and some of the, the places where we know that we stumble and we know we fall into sin. But I think fairly often we tend to err on the side of safety when this passage calls us to err on the side of mercy and care and grace. And church culture in general can be very safe and very unwilling to take risks to further God's kingdom. We tend toward like the bubble boy living where I want to keep myself safe from, from any sin. But here Jesus goes and he touches the person who's defiled. Religious people have always tended toward separation. You know, the Pharisees in Jesus' day, the, the word Pharisee means the separated ones. And Jesus over and over again is going head to head with them saying, you're not holy because of your separation. As the followers of Christ, we are sent into a dark world to, to be, like Jesus, lights in the world. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So as reflections of Christ, we're called to be lights in the world, meaning that we can get out, that we can get close to the, the hurting and the broken and the lost. And we can know that in our day, the cleanness can contaminate the uncleanness. The light can drive out the darkness. So we're called to go and to, to spread the good news. And you say, okay, but if this message is to be spread, why does this next thing happen? Verse 14, it says, and he charged him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. So why do you say not to tell anyone? Jesus does this a few times throughout his ministry. Like He does these amazing things, and the first thing he tells that person is, hide it. Like We don't sing that, right? Like, hide it under a bushel. Yes. <laughs> no, no, we don't. Like we, we go out and tell everybody, so why is this guy told not to tell anyone? Well, there are probably a few reasons. One is, is for the good of this leper. Uh, the, the process for someone to be declared clean from leprosy took time. You would go to a priest and you would get examined. You would go back to that priest a week later and get examined. It, it took some time to verify that someone's leprosy was gone. And so imagine if at this point some of the religious leaders are saying, man, we don't like this Jesus guy. We want to discredit this Jesus. So they go to the priest whose job it is to certify a, a cure from leprosy. And they say, hey, here's the deal. Don't say this guy's cured. Say that the leprosy is still there because we are not fond of this guy, Jesus, because he's saying some really bold things about himself. We don't like those things. We don't want anyone thinking that he can cure leprosy. So then the leper goes to the priest. The word is already spread because he's told everybody. And the priest, under religious pressure, says, yeah, no, I, I don't think you're, you're cured. And he can't be welcomed back into society. He can't have the community that he was after again. So, so in this case, he may have told him not to tell anyone just for that reason. Um, but also, there's a pretty good chance Jesus is being strategic here and making sure that this thing is declared cured and certified as cured so that the religious leaders have to ask themselves the question of who this Jesus is. If they can get this, this certified, then they're going to have to 
answer the question, who is this guy who cured a leper? They've got a certified miracle on their hands, so who is Jesus? This is going to raise some real curiosity in the religious leaders who also need to hear the good news of who Jesus is. And so it's no surprise that in the next section, for the first time, you see Pharisees and teachers of the law showing up in the crowds when Jesus is teaching. Jesus has kind of sparked his curiosity with the way he handled the leper and told him to go to them first. But then on top of that, Jesus had a a unique relationship with his miracles. Like He did his miracles to do good for people. And he did his miracles to teach people something about who he is and what it would be like when his kingdom fully came. You know, for example, he would multiply the loaves to show that he was the bread of life and to show that when he returns, there will be no more hunger. Um, He he would heal a leper to show that when he returns, there there will be no more leprosy, there will be no more disease. It was showing about who he is and what it's going to be like when he comes back. But there was also a constant frustration in the life of Jesus that people came around him for the miracles They demanded miracles. They stuck around as long as he was doing miracles, but weren't listening to the important things that he was saying. And so so Jesus tended to downplay the miracles so that everything could be focused on the word. So he tells this guy, don't tell anyone, just go straight to the priest, get it certified, but it doesn't work. Verse 15, it says, but now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Now, Jesus is obviously famous at this point, but he is not throwing wood on that fire. His aim isn't more fame right now. His aim is not a bigger platform right now. His aim is not more power right now. When things are going really well in his ministry, he withdraws. And you see this over and over again where you see Jesus praying. And, and he's true God, and he's true man, and, and, and he was always perfectly dependent on his father for strength and power and holiness and focus. And he would leave the crowds, even these crowds that really needed him and the crowds of people that he could really help, and he would do that so that he could do what, what was even more important, which was pray. And if this was necessary for Jesus, how much more necessary is it for us? And when we talk about being lights in a dark world and getting close to people's messes, that does take something out of us. There is risk to that. There is temptation that can come with that. And if Jesus needed to withdraw so that he could pray to his Father, how much more do we need to do the same thing? There is no being light in darkness without that relationship with the Father, without that kind of prayer. To keep from being overcome by the darkness and being part of the darkness Jesus would withdraw and pray, and he did so perfectly. So verse 17. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So so the religious people have heard, and they have shown up from all over the place to see what Jesus is doing. And it says, And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. 
So Jesus is preaching in a house, and it is jam-packed. Uh, some friends come with their friend on a mat who is paralyzed, and they would love to see Jesus heal him. And, and some of these houses apparently had rigid tiles up on the roof, so you could actually go and hang out on the roof and use it as living space. But also with some digging, you could get those tiles out and kind of open things up. And so, so Jesus is in there teaching, and then all of a sudden, right above him, one of those tiles is removed. And debris is falling down, and obviously everybody is paying attention to that at this point. Then the friend starts being lowered on a mat, and there is no talking about anything else because of like how big this interruption is. And we've definitely had some big interruptions around here, but uh, really nothing like that. And as a teacher, you get used to a lot of it. Like there are certain things that you just don't even notice anymore. Like you get used to crying babies that doesn't even like bother me or phase me at all anymore. Um, you, you get used to some shuffling around, people coming and going and stuff. You know, sometimes they're the people who come in 15 minutes into the sermon with a really big jingly set of keys and they want to sit in the second row and in the middle. And so you, you kind of get used to those distractions. I'm sure Jesus had the people with their car keys jingling around too. And he, he got used to that. But sometimes there's just no denying the thing that's going on and you have to acknowledge it. So like, for example, a couple of years ago when we had a bird flying around in here during service, it, it was all over. Like everybody's attention is on the bird. And of course it comes right up here on the stage. And it's not like anyone is paying attention to anything that I'm saying when there's this bird fluttering around. I mean, at that point, we're talking about the bird. Like, that, that's what we're talking about. The bird can preach. That's cool. I'm going to go backstage. It's over. And so at this point, no matter what Jesus has been talking about, all he can talk about now is this. this. This guy who's being lowered on the mat, this is now the center of everybody's attention. And now Jesus loved the word of God. He loved preaching the word of God. He was a scholar who studied. I mean, we saw that when he was a kid, he went into the temple and they were amazed at his learning. So he really valued what he was doing. I'm sure he valued his, his preparation and his study. He valued the, the teaching of God's word. And it's so easy when you're doing that to see anything else that goes on as just an interruption to what you're supposed to be doing. And so, so there would be a temptation as this guy's being lowered for Jesus to be thinking, do you understand how much work I put into this? You know how many hours go into preparing a message? How much thought, how a lifetime of preparation has gone into speaking the words of God to you? And you're going to do this in, in the middle of all this? But look at what Jesus does in, in verse 20. It says, and when he saw their faith. Notice what Jesus sees here. I mean, if I were speaking and something like this happened, I am just seeing an interruption. I'm like, are, are you kidding? Is this really going on right now? But Jesus looks up and he doesn't see an inter interruption. He sees their faith. And that's what stands out to him. And you see this all throughout the life of Jesus where you don't see Jesus treating people who look like they're interrupting him as interruptions. But he treats them like they're the reason that he's here. And he was as devoted to the word of God as, as anyone, more devoted than anyone. He was a scholar, he studied, he knew the power and authority of God's word, but he wasn't a cold academic. He was here for people. And I think this is important for us to, to remember that, that ministry is always people work. Um, I get to go and uh, do assessments for people who are planting churches pretty often. I got to do some uh, this week. Uh, but, but often we'll see people who come in and they want to plant a church, they want to be a pastor, and the reason is because they'll be able to study all the time. 
Um, and they're, they're scholars, they love their books, they love their theology, they love their Bible, and they should love all of those things, and, and studying is a big part of the pastoral vocation. But something that we always have to remind people of is that ministry is always people work. People are not an, an interruption to the work of the ministry. They're a reason that we're here. And so Jesus looks and he sees the, the good in what they're doing. They're bringing a person to Jesus. And yeah, it interrupted the talk. Yeah, he lost the attention of everybody in the room, but they were bringing a person to Jesus and he loved the faith that he saw. People are never a distraction from real ministry. In our church, um, we just had our 10th anniversary uh, this, this past fall, and so it's easy uh, at a time like this to be really reflective of all that God has done in the last 10 years. And we look back, and, and 10 years ago, we were just starting out. We were meeting in the German house. Everybody knew everybody. We were able to all eat meals together. We had the one 10 a.m. service, and we would do like pizza Sunday once a month and all eat together, all know each other. There was so much like really tight community. And sometimes we look at things and we say, you know, all these people have come now, and that kind of wrecks it. But, uh, but people don't wreck it. Yeah, it is different. You know, I do miss being able to have the entire church over to my house for dinner. Um, we had our, our staff Christmas party this last Friday, and just like staff and spouses showing up at this thing, it was really, really full. Like it packed the entire house just for that small part of our church to show up at the house. So it is different. But people don't wreck the church. They're a big reason that we are the church. We want to glorify God, and we want to spread a passion for Jesus to people. Um, so we don't see people as an interruption. We don't see people by themselves as, as problems. Jesus looks up, and he sees faith. Yeah, there's a lot of people, but they're people who've come because of faith in Jesus, and that's a good thing to see. So these guys carry their friend to see Jesus. In verse 20, he says something that shocks everybody. It says, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, this is confusing. It is probably not what this paralyzed guy expected. I mean, he has just gone through all of this. I'm sure it's humiliating being lowered like that on the mat. I'm sure those moments as they're trying to keep four ropes even as, he, as he's being lowered, um, had to, there had to be like some harrowing moments. And he did not go through all of this to hear the religious guy say that his sins are forgiven. This isn't what he's looking for. In this guy's mind, his biggest need was physical healing. I mean, this is his biggest problem in life. And most of us would look at him and say, I can see this is what your biggest problem is. I mean, think of what his life has been like. You know, he spent his life watching his friends run around while he laid on a mattress. His friends grew up and got married, and he was carried to their weddings on a mattress. He probably had to have people bathe him and, and feed him. And you know that he's thinking, man, if I could only walk then I'd be happy, then I'd have what I'm really after. If I weren't paralyzed, all my problems would go away. The world would open up to me. I'd have the peace I'm after. But Jesus shocks him by saying, your need is elsewhere. Jesus says, I, I could make you walk, but that isn't your biggest need. I think this is something that we need to hear from Jesus too. That, that often we go to him bringing what we know is the biggest thing we need in life. And it usually is, you know, job, relationship, money, physical healing. We know this is the biggest thing that I need. And so we rightly go to Jesus asking for those things, but we need to remember that we're going to a Jesus who does know what our real biggest need is. And that we tend to be like people who are walking through the desert, always seeing a mirage off on the horizon, thinking if I just got that, that would satisfy. 
But then we get that thing, and it's a mouthful of sand. There's still something else that we're after. We still haven't found what we're looking for when, when we get those things. And so Jesus looks at this guy and, and says, yes, this is a, a real problem, and there won't be brokenness like that when Jesus comes in his kingdom. But there's a, biggest, a bigger need. The bigger need is to have sins forgiven and to have a right relationship with God. Jesus knows better. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows that our problem is always bigger and deeper than the one that we perceive. And when we go to God begging for our answers as we should, sometimes we're looking for salvation in all the wrong places. And he's kind enough to give us what we need and not what we think we need. So Jesus tells him his sins are forgiven, which surprises him, but this is also a shock to these religious people. Verse 21, it says, the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? I mean, Jesus is making an outlandish claim by saying that this man's sins are forgiven. Jesus is putting himself in the place of God. This is a claim to deity. Nobody can say that God has forgiven someone else's sins. And here's Jesus telling this guy your sins are forgiven. So the religious leaders immediately are thinking this cannot be a good rabbi. Good rabbis don't do that. Good rabbis come and they, they teach the Ten Commandments. Good rabbis don't say, I gave you the Ten Commandments or I wrote the Ten Commandments. This guy is a nut job. He is claiming to be God. He's a, he's a cult leader. He's not some good rabbi. We, we found out what we need to find out about Jesus. And so he's claiming to be God here. That's shocking. On top of that, He's telling this guy his sins are forgiven without him doing the normal things you do to get your sins forgiven. To get your sins forgiven, you got to do stuff. You go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. This guy hasn't done that. He's laying on the family room floor. But Jesus says, no, it's done. He didn't do anything. He didn't deserve anything. And Jesus pronounces that his sins are forgiven without him doing any good works whatsoever. And this is another picture of the gospel. That we come to Jesus, we have nothing to offer him. There's nothing that we can do to, to get our sins forgiven. That any religious hoops we, we jump through would never be enough. There, there was no hope for us without him. But Jesus saves when we just look to him by faith, not when we do anything. So the religious leaders are shocked. And then they question this, this crazy claim that Jesus is making. And so Jesus knows what they're thinking. Verse 22 says, When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do, you say in your, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk? So what's he saying here? He's saying that it's much easier to tell somebody than th that their sins are forgiven than it is to tell someone who's paralyzed to get up and walk. Because think of how that could go badly. And Jesus is making the, these wild claims about himself and who he is. And if he looks at that guy and says, I'm healing you, pick up your bed, get up and walk, and the guy doesn't pick up his bed and walk, it's all over for Jesus' ministry. Like, you're proven to be a fraud at that point. He tells him to walk, and it's just wah, wah, and it's over. The crowd's dispersed. The ministry's over. Jesus has no more authority. People aren't going to listen to his words. If you tell someone to get up and walk, and they can't get up and walk, you no longer have the authority you're claiming to have. So it's much easier to say to someone, your sins are forgiven. Because there's no verifying whether that's true or not. When our kids were little, I used to do some magic tricks for them that were terrible, and um, I would like take a quarter and put it in my hand and close my hand on it and say, watch, I'm going to make it disappear. 
it's gone. And then I'd say, and watch, it's back. And show them. And that's amazing when you're two. Um, but it's, it's an unverifiable claim. <laughs> like, you can't verify whether that quarter's gone when my hand's closed. And, and here, you can say to a guy, your sins are forgiven, but how do you verify that? And that's not that hard to say. Anyone can say that. So these religious leaders are, are immediately outraged. They're immediately dismissing Jesus in their minds. They're, they're thinking, okay, he's just crazy. He's talking a good game, but you can say that stuff. But then he messes all that up in verse 24. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So now he says the hard thing. And look what could happen here. I mean, if he says your sins are forgiven, people hear that and they say uh, he can say whatever he wants. If he says pick up your bed and walk home, then that guy's either going to do it and force them to contend with that other thing he just said, or it's going to end Jesus' ministry. So just pick up your bed, go home. In verse 25, and immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So now what do you do with Jesus? He makes these outlandish claims, your sins are forgiven, but then he says the really hard thing, pick up your mat and go home, and the guy does. And if this guy can heal a guy like that, a guy who's had it that bad, who is, is that infirm, who's that clearly paralyzed, a guy that we all knew and he's completely healed, then what kind of authority does this guy have? Who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? And that day they are in awe of him. And so for us, our response is to also stand in awe of him. To stand in awe of a Jesus who runs toward darkness in order to bring light. In awe of a Jesus who's willing to take defilement on himself so that we could be cleansed. In awe of a Jesus who doesn't see us as an interruption to what he's doing, but welcomes those who come to him by faith. In awe of a Jesus who's never rejected anyone who's come to him by faith. In awe of a Jesus who, even though he's God, came to earth to be close to the hurting and defiled and die for our sins. In awe of a Jesus who meets the deepest need of our heart. Not necessarily what we think is the deepest need of our heart. In awe of a Jesus with power and authority and who has the authority to forgive our sins. So we're in awe of him, and it's important for us to ask, what do we do with this Jesus? What do we do with him? Do we hang our lives on this one who showed his power and authority in the way that he healed and, and believed the words that he said? Or do we cover our eyes and run away just denying it all? Because he says of all those who come to him, he won't lose one. If we'll come to him and just admit our sinfulness and our brokenness, we'll admit that on our own we are, are defiled, but we'll confess our sin, we'll believe in him and what he did for us on that cross, we'll trust in his death and resurrection on our behalf and cry out to him for forgiveness, he says he'll welcome us, he'll receive us. He's not going to run away from our darkness, he's going to shine his light into it, and that's a promise for all who will believe. 
So let's trust in him today and find our peace there. Let's pray. Well, Father, we confess that like this leper, we're not fit to come before you. We don't have any righteousness of our own to offer. We don't have anything to to sacrifice that's even worthy of the huge debt that we owe you. In our lives, we've become defiled. We haven't done what's just and right, but we've sinned regularly in in the things that we say and the things that we do and the things that we think. We haven't loved what you've loved. We haven't walked humbly. We haven't been wise. But so often we've walked in our own wisdom and and we've followed the counsel of the world around us. We've become the darkness so often. So Father, forgive us. But Jesus, you are our righteousness. You've made a perfect offering to atone for all of our sin. You walked humbly with God every day of your life. You loved faithfulness and mercy. So we thank you for your huge mercy in which you came to sinners like us to cleanse us with your blood, to clothe us in your perfect righteousness. We thank you that you've done these things and we are in awe of what a perfect Savior you are. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in us real righteousness. Create in us real goodness and beauty like we see in Jesus here. Give us a new desire to obey you, to live lives of purity, but also to go to those who are broken and defiled and seem so far away from you with the good news of the light of Jesus. Continue to remind us of who Jesus is for us so that we wouldn't be overcome by the darkness, but instead would reflect his light to to a broken and suffering world around us. Thank you for the goodness that you've given us in Christ, and we pray that in response to that, you would make us reflect him as lights in the world so that you could be made much of, so you could be glorified and lifted up, and so that more and more people would come to know you and believe by faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and worship him together.